This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased to have with us Professor John Hardman. Professor Hardman is one of the leading historians dealing with 18th century France. Among his most recent books is his acclaimed biography of Louis XVI. And today we'll be speaking about his latest book, Marie Antoinette, published by Yale University Press. Welcome, Professor Hardman. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Professor, what would what could one say in terms of uh, the thesis of your book? I suppose um, the main argument is that Marie Antoinette has usually been presented as a flighty, um, clothes, clothes mad, hairdo mad woman. Um, pleasure-seeking. And what I have aimed to do is to modify that view. And I say that in the early years of her life, but remember she was only a teenager, she was a pleasure-seeker. But that later, um, particularly from the onset of the French Revolution, she had to intervene politically because her husband, the king, suffered what we would call a nervous breakdown in April 1787 after his program was his reform program was defeated by the assembly of notables he she had to step into the breach and she was aware of that she said you know it is my fate to have to do this um she may be maybe possibly she wanted to in any case, but I suspect it was, it was greatness thrust upon her. So that's the main argument. I say that in the early period, although um, she seems a pleasure seeker, it is really a, of a frenetic, nervous kind, a sort of what we would call displacement activity. Um, she was very unhappy when she first came as a 14-year-old girl. Um, she um, didn't get on with her husband at first. The marriage wasn't consummated. And you could say that this pleasure-seeking was a sort of way of, I put it, throwing scraps of meat to the wolf at the door. So that really occupies the first... Well, her first child um, is born in 1778. Um, and it's a girl. Now, girls can't accede to the throne in France, so she hadn't done her duty yet. 
Um, that happened in 1781, so quite late on, um, when she produced the Dauphin. What are the sources that you employ in the book which had not been used previously by other biographers and Marie Antoinette? The, the main sources that everyone has relied on um, since they were published in the middle of the 19th century um, is what I call the Austrian material. That is correspondence um, to Marie Antoinette by her mother, Maria Theresa, her brother, uh, Joseph II, and as a sort of her mind, you might say, uh, the Austrian ambassador to France, the Comte de Merci Argenteau. Now, um, that gives, that is, I would say, gives a false impression. For one thing, that you've got this the enormous distance of space. Um, and also, it happens that both, uh, both Joseph and Maria Theresa were rather chatty sort of people. And so when they ask about her sexual life, for example, there's as much prurience as diplomacy about it. Now, what I've done, the other thing is that Marie Antoinette, her first language was French. Her father was a Duke of Lorraine and, and spoke French, wouldn't learn German. So I have, what I have done, is I've looked at the Austrian sources. You need them for biographical detail. But for the bulk of the argument, I have looked at the French sources, and there are plenty, some that haven't been used before. For example, um, the diary of the naval minister, the, the, the Marquis de Castres, um, is absolutely vital for an understanding of her, her political role. And there are others like that. So my main, my main thing is, is, is concentrate on the French angle of it, where she spent most of her life by... Um, the 1770s, she, uh, she, she'd lost the command of German. She had to have German lessons. So I see her as a French person. And of course, um, and this was said by comment, commentators at the time, her whole personality was, was French. I mean, the sort of, you know, uh, the caricature of the French person, you know, fr frivolous, pleasure-seeking, well-mannered, all that. I mean, she was, in a sense, although she was deeply unpopular in France, she was, in a way, an archetypal Frenchwoman. You state on the first page of the bibliography that yours is only the second academic biography of Marie Antoinette. Why is that? I, I'm not quite sure, really. Well, I, well, I can explain it. Um, I think that to understand um, her political role, um, which she did have, you need to understand the political system, which is very, very complex. And because of my earlier studies of the political system, um, I wrote a, some years ago, I wrote a book called French Politics um, from the accession of, of Louis XVI to the fall of the Bastille. Because I've gone into that, I'm able to slot her in, as it were. Um, I can, yes, I can slot her in. Now, other people um, have not wanted to do that and not been able to do it. They look at the Austrian stuff, they, they have a very good story to tell, it's dramatic, the terrible end she has, um, her, her pleasure-seeking, the, the great contrast between um, the glory days at Versailles and the appalling, her appalling last months, and the period in the revolution when she is absolutely, there's a gnawing fear the whole time for the last four or five years of her life. 
Um, so I think that people, it is very easy to write um, a, what I might call a chatty biography of, of Barrington because the sources are there. It is very hard, actually, to write a political one. And although her political role really only lasted for about five years, it was absolutely crucial. So that, I think, is why um, people have they've taken the easy option. And also, if you want, to ha- if you want a best-selling biography, then all the material that is there in the Austrian stuff. What was the childhood of the Archduchess Marie Antonia like at the Habsburg court? Well, it, 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 she, was, she was neglected. Uh, she was one of um, 15 children of Maria Theresa, uh, the youngest but one of uh, surviving children. She was a girl, so she wasn't going to um, occupy uh, any, a throne or anything like that. And her education was non-existent until, and this is important, um, when she was about 11, there was what was called a diplomatic revolution. That is, um, France and Austria, who had been enemies for centuries, decided that they, they had new, new enmities and, need, and needed to be friends again. So um, they had this diplomatic revolution, and suddenly Maria Theresa wanted to secure this. She wanted a pledge of the continuance of this alliance after she was gone. And Marie Antoinette happened to be the right age for the, to, for, to, to marry the heir to the French throne, the Dauphin. There were, you know, um, other, other ones, but they, they were exactly of an age, or well, she was one year younger. So suddenly, um, Maria Theresa takes an interest in this little girl, and she gives her. She gets a French tutor who comes over, and he tries to cram as much knowledge into her as he can. But he only has a year to do it, and by the time she comes to France, I mean her handwriting is very bad. She reads very little. Um, you would say she's uneducated. Um, it was a happy life there. It, it, in Vienna, I mean, they, I don't know, there's talk of sleigh rides and all that sort of thing. It, it, it was a, a happy family, but also Maria Theresa was very, very dominating. And that domination didn't stop when, um, when she got to France because she had these hectoring letters all the time being sent and, uh, and Merci Argento was spying on her and whatever. So, that's what you might say. That's, that's her time in Vienna, which is very short, of course. And it was, it was happy, but neglected. What were the key factions at the French court when Marie Antoinette arrived there in 1770? Well, this is crucial because um, the architect, one of the architects of the diplomatic revolution, the Austrian alliance, was the Duc de Choiseul. And he was in power. He exercised, or he, he was almost a prime minister. Um, now, he fell from office the same year that Marie Antoinette came to France, which was a disaster for her. And the, a new, the, there was a new faction in control with a, a new mistress for um, Louis XV, Madame du Barry. And a whole series of ministers uh, came in under her skirts, as it were, um, the Duke d'Aiguillon, um, uh, the Abbé Terre, 
and the Chancellor Mopu. Now, this is the adverse faction. They didn't like Marie Antoinette. And it was rather, and, and she detested Madame du Barry. In fact, Merci Argenteau had to persuade her, take a whole year, just to get us to say one word to Madame du Barry, just to say that they finally agreed that, that one day, um, when at court, Marie Antoinette would say to Madame du Barry, there are a lot of people at Versailles today. And Madame du Barry said, oh, that's marvellous, you know, that's all she needed. But, but she hated Madame du Barry, and she hated that faction. And that faction both loathed and feared her. They feared her because Louis XV was getting on. Um, he was 60, um, and their debate about his health, the Austrian sources say that his increasingly sort of his sexual uh, liberties and whatever, liberty, had, had um, undermined his health. I don't think that's true. I think he was healthy. But all the same, um, the age of 60... Uh, in 1770 was a good age and Louis XV himself was worried because his own son um, the, the, the first Dauphin had died and the new heir Louis XVI was, was only 15 and so you know he said poor France an old king and a young Dauphin so they were terrified that what would happen what would happen when she became queen it was rumored that she would dominate her husband the king though this wasn't true. And so they both loathed her and feared her. So those were the two basic um, factions in court. There was one other faction, not exactly a faction, but there was a family who enjoyed a whole host of court posts. They were the Noailles family. And, and when Marie Antoinette, they must somehow have offended her in this short period when she was Dauphine, because she determined when she came to the throne, she determined, first of all, to get rid of all, uh, have Madame de Barry exiled and her ministers exiled, and cut down, as she put it, um, the Noahide, cut them down to size. So it was an unhappy adolescence she had, no doubt about that. She was deeply unhappy at court. Uh, how do you explain the rise of the Polignac family in the years after 1775? Marie Antoinette was, as I said, determined to pull down um, the Noailles. But the, and the Polignac became, Madame de Polignac became her bosom friend. But the rise of the Polignacs is, is not as easy as that. When Louis XVI came to the throne, he appointed as a chief minister the Comte de Maurepas. And he was obsessed that Marie Antoinette would dominate her husband and in particular would favor an Austrian policy. Now, he wasn't anti-Austrian, but he didn't want to, uh, he didn't want to uh, subordinate French policy to Austrian. So he was determined to curb her power, to stop her intervening. And the way he did it was he had a remote country cousin, the Polignac, Madame de Polignac, living out in the sticks on £300 a year. And uh, not really a sufficient status to figure at court, but he brought her to court and made sure that Marie Antoinette encountered her one of the salons. And of course, Marie, she was incredibly beautiful. 
uh, one source says that you know even even Raphael could not do her justice. So she was incredibly beautiful. She was charming. She was unpushy at first, and Marie Antoinette felt an instant attraction to this woman, and so you get this strange and 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 round her, Marie Antoinette forms her own social circle. So. Um, you get what I call the social circle of Marie Antoinette, where, where um, she would play the piano, entertain amateur theatricals, all with the Polignacs and their hangers-on. But all the time, Madame de Polignac was like a secret agent for the Comte de Maurepas, um, because he'd planted her at court. And so what she had to do, if, for example... Um, Joseph, the Emperor Joseph, her brother, tried to get Marie Antoinette to intervene in, in the Austrian interest. Um, the king would have a row with her because he excluded her from, from all policy at this stage. And Madame de Polignac um, would calm her down. Um, there's one marvelous instance where um, they're having a, this quarrel uh, and it can be heard through a door and... and, and and Madame de Polignac gives the king a wink, saying, I'll calm her down. So that was her role. There's this dual role. She is both entertaining and thwarting the queen. What were the origins of the queen's relationship with uh, the Swedish uh, uh, gentleman, Axel von Fersen? Yes, well, Fersen um, was attached to um, the French court. He was a, a I mean, one of, one of the, the deepest alliance, the oldest alliance that France had was with Sweden, and Gustavus III of Sweden was uh, great friends uh, with Marie Antoinette and, and um, the king, Louis XVI, visited. And Fersen was just sent over, really, um, as a, just to sort of, initially, just as part of the grand tour. Uh, when he came over as part of the Grand Tour, they were instantly attracted. Um, but um, he um, realized that, that it, this was dangerous, um, both for him and for her. So he left, um, went off to England, um, went off to America. But all the time... Um, when he then came, it's like a question, it's absence makes the heart grow fonder. When they, at first it was just as all instant superficial attraction. When he came back in the 1780s, um, there was obviously something much more. And there's been speculation then, not much then actually, but ever since, about did they become lovers, and if so, when? And um, what has, the, the letters um, between them uh, were published by a descendant of Fersen in the um, 1880s, but there were, there were sections were redacted. And this, of course, raised all sorts of suspicions and people, you know, put two together and got four or five. Very recently, using modern imaging, people have been able to, it's impossible to reconstruct the letters. And in fact, they don't reveal anything. They say, I love you madly dearly. I love you madly, passionately, and all this, you know, the, uh, the beginning and the end, you know, where, where it was redacted. And, and, you know, 
um, in the 19th century, the 19th century had a thought that saying I love you madly deeply was, was awful. Um, to, the, to the 20th year, uh, 20th century era, it's not so bad. But there's nothing sexual in them, nor would you expect there to be. That doesn't mean they didn't have a sexual relationship, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't get it in a letter. Now, I argue, um, I have no proof, nobody has any proof. I argue that Marie Antoinette bore the king four legitimate children, um, two boys and two girls. And the last one was born in 1785. And she then writes to Joseph saying that she doesn't really want to have continue having sexual relationships with the king. She's done her duty. And I argue that it's at this point, say 1786, that they do become lovers. Um, but, I mean, there, there's circumstantial evidence. I mean, on one occasion, Thurston writes in the winter and says, you know, will you have a stall, will you have a, a chimney installed in my room to keep me warm? And, you know, that's a bit suspicious, you know, like an adjoining room and all that. So that really is all I or anybody knows about that. Would it be correct to say, Professor, that uh, the Queen's attempts at endeavoring to um, intervene politically on behalf of the, the House of Austria, while quite frequent, were equally uh, unsuccessful for the most part? They were unsuccessful, and I argue that she didn't actually try very hard um, there was a, 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 a key moment uh, in 1787, just before her, her main intervention in home affairs, when the, uh, the, the French foreign minister, Vergen, died, and the Austrians wanted their candidate um, to succeed him, a pro-Austrian. And Marie Antoinette... Um, wrote to, to Merci Argento and, and, and said, um, I'm afraid that um, I don't think it's appropriate for a minister of Versailles to be appointed at Vienna. And Merci Argento explains this to, um, to the emperor, and he says, the, the queen has this ridiculous scruple, this ridiculous scruple that we shouldn't be appointing the the ambassador, the, the French foreign minister. And he, he is, Merci Argento and, and Joseph are absolutely, they've got sort of tin ears. I mean, they don't realize the damage that it would have done to Marie Antoinette and to the alliance for that matter. So the thing is, all the time, the, what happened, the, the scene reenacted so many times is that Joseph uh, writes to, to Marie Antoinette saying, will you intervene in this, my claim on Bavaria, say. She goes to the king and um, says, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and, and the king says, shut up. Um, and um, he says, your, your family has caused enough trouble already. First, it was the Polish partition, 1772, and now you want to make Bavaria a second chapter. I, I am very sorry for you, madam. He calls her madam. He, I think that you never know what royal people call each other, but I, I think they call each other madam and monsieur, especially when he's angry. 
and um, and so that's it. And he says, she then says to Joe, "Sorry, I couldn't do anything." You know, and that is the pattern that it, that is um, repeated. There is just one occasion when this was in 1785 when France had a difficult situation because her allies, Austria, and her ally, the Dutch Republic, were about to go to war over freedom of navigation of the Scheldt. Now, what happens is that France buys Austria off, Austria off with just a small amount of money. I think it's something like eight eight million gold ducats, I think, something like that. Um, now, this gets out, and it forms the basis of something that was brought up at, Mar- at Maria Tr- uh, Antoinette's own trial, that she was sending billions of pounds out to Austria to her brother. And as very often with Marie Antoinette, there is a grain of truth in the accusations against her, which then get magnified. So um, that is the one thing you might say that she got for her brother, this comparatively paltry sum, which... um, France gave to Holland, which gave to to um, Austria, uh, and saved face. But in fact, Joseph, you know, his his policy failed completely. Uh, how important was the diamond necklace affair in the downfall of the Alsian regime, and what role did the Queen have in the matter? It was extremely an extremely important event. Um, you might say it even marks the unraveling of the Ancien Regime, because all the principal institutions and personalities of of the Ancien Regime are involved in it on one side or another. Now, Marion Zanet was completely innocent. Um, She didn't ask for this necklace or anything like that. But again, there's a grain of truth. If you go right back to the beginning of the reign, between 1774 to 6, she did buy a lot of diamonds on credit from the court jewelers without telling the king. Now, she did that for two years and then she stopped. But again, it made it credible, it seemed credible that she would have a midnight assignation with a cardinal on a balcony of Versailles to in order in order that he, the Cardinal de Rouen, should order a diamond necklace without telling the king and that she would then pay for it over the years. That was credible. Now, it wasn't true, but it was credible. Um, and she then made a really... When, when the whole thing, when it got out when the court jewellers asked for their money and asked why the Queen wasn't wearing the necklace, it got out. And there was a big scene when Marie Antoinette basically took control of matters, a king letter. And what she decided to do, uh, they summoned the Cardinal de Rohan, he was arrested and thrown in the Bastille. Now then they had to decide what to do, and this is where she made the big mistake. The best way of doing it, ad- advised by her, her minister, the, the, the Marshal de Castro, was, look, let's just um, hush it up, 
send him into exile, strip him of his offices, but just just play it calmly. Now she said, no, no, no. My honour has been impugned. Um, I think the whole thing should be tried by the Parlement of Paris. Now the Parlement of Paris, they were what it's hard to describe their role in five minutes, so I won't, but I'll just say they are political judges. Um, they register royal legislation and sometimes hold it up. And at that time, um, the Parlement and the Crown were at loggerheads. So it was an absolutely disastrous mistake. In a, so this trial became political. And people took sides depending on whether they opposed the court or not. And um, so Rouen was acquitted. So that's the second mistake Marie Antoinette makes. Now she makes a third. She, just, she is determined to exact vengeance. And so is the king, for that matter. And they say, all right, he's been acquitted. But it was a, it was a fake trial. Um, and so we're going to punish him in any case. So they strip him of all his offices. And they send him into exile, not just anywhere, but to one of the most unpleasant places in France. They send him to the Puy de Dome, to an abbey, right up in the mountains with winter coming on. And, of course, um, everyone sides with, with the cardinal, and everyone is against Marie Antoinette. And this really, her unpopularity, she's always been, unpo well, always been unpopular because she's Austrian, but at the very beginning, because she was beautiful, she was popular, but... By 1776, she'd lost her population, popularity, but by 1786, um, just as she was about to have real political influence uh, and, would, and would need to be popular, she was by now hated. So there are these two things, there's sympathy with Austria, there's extravagance, and then there's vindictiveness is the word. And she was vindictive. Let it be said, she was vindictive. Why do you blame Necker rather than Cologne uh, for the financial difficulties of the monarchy in the mid to late 1780s? Yeah, so this is very important. Um, the thing is that um, Necker, um, towards well, the last months of his first ministry um, in 1781, publishes a fraudulent account of the royal finances. He says... Um, that on the ordinary account, whatever that means, um, there's a slight surplus, surplus of 10, uh, 10 million uh, francs or livres, the same thing, um, whereas in fact there's a deficit of 55. Now, the thing is that this makes... Necker then loses office uh, a few months later, but it makes it impossible for any of his successors to argue that the crown is in deep financial trouble because Necker... Who is has a, a super? He's a superb grandstander, superb self-publicist, the best, the first in France probably. And people, the taxpayers, want to believe that there's a surplus, and then you know they can tax evade. So when um, Calon reveals the true state of the treasury, nobody believes him, or put it this way, they choose not to believe him. But I mean, the. Some people defend Necker, but they say, you know, how could you know as accountants? You know, accountants are always playing tricks. It's, a, it's, a, it's just a question of playing with figures. But I don't think that's right. I, I think there was an internal investigation um, at the Treasury, 
um, immediately after uh, Necker's was dismissed or resigned rather, um, which actually you know proved conclusively that what he'd done was this: um, the war was fought on credit, and they borrowed money and they had to pay interest on that money. He completely left that out of the balance sheet. The war, it was as if the war, because he said this is an, an ordinary account, and war is not ordinary, so I'm just not going to me- not don't mention the war. So this was the, that, that was the fundamental dishonesty of him. The, the second dishonesty was that he bought out quite a few court offices, um, to, which would have saved money in the long run. But... He had to, but he had to compensate them. The compensation was, again, missed out of the ledger. So those two important things, compensation, buying out court offices and financial offices, and above all, the war, completely left on one side. What role did the Queen have in the dismissal of Cologne? A very big role. Um, a very big role. Um, they were um, on bad terms. For one thing, Calon in the diamond necklace affair was rooting for Rohr and was actually bribing and bullying the judges to vote for this acquittal. So, you know, there was no love lost. Um, but what I mean, what she she said later was, um, I wasn't against him; I was neutral. And then one of her courtiers said, "That's already too much." Um, the thing is that. Calon was already in trouble because what he, what he was really doing, I mean, he was asking an assembly of the privileged classes to renounce some of their privileges, like Turkey's voting early for Christmas. Um, and there was one cartoon that actually portrayed them as turkeys, and they were, they were told, um, we're going to eat you with what sauce do you want to be eaten? And, and um, the turkeys say, but we don't want to be eaten at all. So he was already in trouble. And um, Marie Antoinette, she didn't just put the boot in, but, she, but the leader of the opposition in the Assembly of Notables, Brienne, was her man. And she had been working for nearly, well, certainly for nearly 10 years to have him made prime minister. So this, the conjunction of um, Calon already tottering, and she then um, got um, Brienne to write a series of letters to the king and one or two other people. So, um, and then there was the there was the the final denouement, uh, which happens uh, at Easter time uh, in 1787, when Calon. Uh, goes to the king and he said, look, the queen is undermining me. And Louis calls in the queen and says, don't interfere in man's business, grabs her by the shoulders and march, frog marches her out of the room. And um, so that, 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 that's, that's the first thing. And, you know, what woman, particularly Marie Antoinette, could ever forgive that? The next thing is that Calon... Um, manages to persuade the king that the keeper of the seals, the justice minister, who has been undermining him, he's been undermining him all the time, and he persuades, um, he persuades the king to dismiss him, and he does. He then goes on and says, um, 
I want you all, I want you also to dismiss the minister for the royal household, which was Marie Antoinette's protege. And the king sort of hesitates and says, well, I, I'll think it over. And at this point, Marie Antoinette goes in and she says, look, I don't care for any of the ministers. You can get rid of the, my minister, uh, Breta, if you like. Do what you like, so long as you get rid of Calon. And the king does. So it's really, it, 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 to sum it up, she puts the boot in. And she later, now, she later, um, when the revolution is underway, admits that she made a mistake in getting rid of Calon. Not in getting rid of him, but in getting rid of him at the height of a crisis. What she, with reflection, thinks she should have done was wait till the notables were over, maybe successful, and then get rid of him. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Uh, why did the Queen wish to have Cologne succeeded by Necker? Well, yes, that, that, that is a very good question. What, what she really wanted was to have her man, Brienne, as sort of as prime minister, and Necker to come back um, as finance minister. Well, the thing is that she had supported him um, during his first ministry. And, of course, her brother Joseph was a great fan of Necker. Um, so she had given him support. Um, and so, and Brienne also wanted to have um, Necker um, under him because he didn't know anything about money. Um, but the king refused point blank. This is in 1787. He wasn't that hard up yet because Necker had resigned in the middle of a war, which was in, in difficulties. And Louis couldn't forgive him. Um, he left my service voluntarily. He must think no more of return. However, the Ministry of Brienne, um, her minister, um, was in fact very unsuccessful. This is the period we're talking now about, May 1787 till August 1788, when everything goes wrong. And this is the period, and this is the period of, of Marie Antoinette's maximum influence. I call it her ascendancy because her man is the minister, and she is backing up his policies against the Parliament. What Brienne is trying to do, basically, is implement Calon's reforms with some modifications and force them through the Parliament, these political judges, and they refuse point blank. And this leads to uh, um, the abolition of the Parliament, widespread unrest in the, in the provinces, countries on fire from one corner to the other, and as a result of all that, um, it's thought the only man who can rescue the situation is Necker. And it is then, we're talking about late August 1787, 
uh, sorry, 1788, when she negotiates the return of Necker. She outlines what he's there to do, where the king will help, where he can't help, everything. She works it out completely. Um, and um, she then negotiates his return. Because, really, I, I think, in a sense, it was, it was the only solution at that stage. Um, but it was already almost too late, because um, when Necker came back, I mean, he said, he, he you know, didn't desperately, he wanted, Necker wanted to succeed Calon desperately. But he was less certain about taking over because he said, you know, I wish I could have had the 18 months were wasted, you know, that Brienne had. I wish, had the, the, I, I wish I could have had the 18 months that the Archbishop of Toulouse had, but I didn't. Now the situation is so bad that all I can do is a holding operation. Uh, why did the Queen break, politically speaking, with the Duchess de Polignac? Um, because she supported Calon, as simple as that. Calon had loaded her with favours, um, and um, she was she was the part of the king's political circle, and it was that circle, Calon, the Polignacs, the king himself, who were defeated um, in um, in 1787, in the spring of 87, Easter. And so, after... Um, as a result of that, I mean, the Madame de Pollack is actually sent into exile to, to England. She's told, well, but she has a sort of story that she's going to take the waters in Bath, but it's really exile. And so for a period of well over a year, um, she's completely out of favor. And Marion Antoinette doesn't go to her salon. She goes to another salon of the, of the Marquis d'Ossin, um, who is much more economical. And um, Madame de Polignac is completely frozen out. She, and a mountain that doesn't, won't discuss politics with her. I mean, they're still, they have to, they preserve the semblance of the friendship, just the appearances, because it would look bad, I mean, if, if she actually formally broke with her. But she's lost all her influence between um, April 1787 and April 1789, when she disastrously recovers her influence. Overall, how would you rate the Queen's activity in the years prior to the fall of the Bastille? Would it be correct to say that, like the King, she seems not to have had an agreed or firm policy? I think she had a, she had a firm policy indeed, but um, it, it, it didn't succeed. I mean, the... the um, the policy really was implemented by uh, Brienne, as I've said, and she would attend cabinet committees and discuss all the policy. Now, the policy itself, um, most people would say, was very good. I mean, it, it was to bring about an equalization of taxation. It was to remove the political role of the parliaments. Um, and um, in fact, and this is, the, this is the big irony, it is these policies precisely which the National Assembly, after the fall of Bastille, implemented. But the thing was that then, in 1787 and 8, if you think of liberty, equality, and fraternity, forget fraternity for the moment, because that's a bit embarrassing, but just look at liberty and equality. The French in 
in 17, the French, Calon offered them, Brienne offered them equality, but they wanted liberty. And it wasn't liberty. What they were offering really, the policy really would have ended up in as a Napoleonic system. So their measures were, they were revolutionary, but there was, it was the revolution of Napoleon rather than the rights of man. So it wasn't a bad policy, um, but I think they just didn't have the strength to do it. That the, the monarchy was already weakened. I mean, I think if, I think that if um, they hadn't sacked Calonne and they pressed on then, it could well. I mean, Talleyrand, for example, said it could well have succeeded if they pressed on. But by the time of Brienne's period and her ascendancy, it was really very difficult. There was this longing for liberty. And they looked at liberty, well, they looked at liberty, of course, in America, and they looked at liberty nearer to home um, in England. And so on paper, the policies were excellent. Uh, but there were mistakes in, in implementation, but I don't know whether anybody could. I mean, the, the, um, the main historian of Brienne, Egre, thinks, you know, that these were really good policies uh, and, you know, they should have succeeded. And I have sympathy with that. Now, in the, going to the period after the fall of Bastille, uh, why was the Queen's relationship with the Marquis de Lafayette so antagonistic? Uh, well, um, I, 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 it, it goes right back. I mean, for a start, during the period of her ascendancy, he, he was grandstanding, you know, throwing in his lot with the, the opposition. That, 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 it, so that got it off to a bad start. Then, um, when you get this absolutely disaster of the, the invasion of the palace, uh, Versailles, on the 5th to 6th October, and um, Marantonis is very nearly killed. And Lafayette comes along with the National Guard and he brings the king and queen back to Paris virtually as prisoners. Now he says that, oh, well, the National Guard forced me to, to, to force me. They said that if, if I don't march on Versailles from Paris, they'll lynch me. And so, he, you know, he, he acts as a great savior, but she doesn't believe him and I don't believe him. Um, he, so, so they're brought back, they're installed in the Tuileries, and he is their jailer, like a mayor of the palace. Um, he controls the, the, the army, he controls the, the, the Paris government, he controls the king's civil list, his, the money he gets, and, and he, he lords it over them. And he makes it quite clear to Marie Antoinette, absolutely clear, he says, look, I am for the revolution, not you. If you don't support me, I have no compunction about getting rid of you. And then, um, that's in his period of pomp. So this is, we're talking about now, the years 1789 and 90. Now after that, he is less influential, but more dangerous. There is, he does talk of having Marinette shut up in a convent and the king divorcing her on grounds of adultery. And it is said that when they are in the Tuileries, which is very, very heavily guarded, I mean, when they're, they're, they're really basically under house arrest, but 
it was said by one minister who knew a lot that Lafayette deliberately left a secret door open for Thurston to come in in order to gather evidence of adultery. Now, I have no proof of that, but it wouldn't surprise me. So a lot of things build up. Um, and so when um, she f- when right at the end of the monarchy, um, Lafayette um, has this scheme to get them out of Paris just before the fall of the Tuileries, she says, you know, I will not owe my life to this man twice. Um, because some people think that he, she may have thought that he actually saved her life on the 6th of October. I mean, paradoxically, but, but wasn't grateful for it. So it's, it's, it's a big indictment. She has it. Oh, and the other thing that I should say, um, when she's making plans um, to escape from Paris in 1791, she draws up a plan of action. And one of the things was to court-martial Lafayette. That was the plan to court-martial him. What was the Queen's relationship with the Comte de Mirabeau? Uh, very interesting. Um, and I, I think it was quite close. Initially, she thought that he was behind the October days. Um, but he wasn't, and, and he managed to prove it. And he was a monarchist. He was, re- and he was, you know, he was a, a collaborator of, of Calon's. And what he wanted, what Mirabeau wanted, was a, a strong constitutional monarchy in alliance with the commoners, the third estate, um, rather than the aristocracy. He wanted a strong monarchy. There's no doubt about that. Um, and she persuaded him, uh, sorry, he persuaded her that, of, of his sincerity. And in fact, um, she thought that he was going too far because she said, um, you know, he actually wants civil war. Um, how, how on earth can I or anybody else, how could Mirabel, anybody else recommend civil war? But I mean, he is important. Um, and um, his analysis of the situation is brilliant. Um, his solutions are very complicated. But his basic idea, which, oh, and I, I, I've also found, I found out something else, that this is something I've discovered since I wrote the book, that she was in relations with, with Mirabeau um, right after the fall, right after the, the, the um, moving to Paris, um, because Mirabeau was in the uh, military committee of the National Assembly, and he stopped going because he thought they were too demagogic and that and the, the, they were army discipline was so bad and she actually says she sends a note through the Comte de Lamarque who is the intermediary and saying look I want Mirabeau to continue sitting in this assembly in this uh, in this committee because I need the army now this is terribly important and I wish I discovered it in time for the book but it's always that way with books isn't it um some people say you shouldn't <laughs> You shouldn't write a book till you've stopped thinking about something. But anyway, so that, that's that. So we get, that goes right back. And then through Lamarck again, um, he, 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 he sends advice uh, and she pays his debts. Um, and then um, they have a meeting. And they have a, they have a meeting uh, in 1790. And the fact that Mirabeau dies um, on the 2nd of April 1791 is a big factor in Marinette's decision to flee because she now feels she has got nobody who has the remotest chance 
of controlling the National Assembly. She feels that she's lost her main influence because he's died. Um, and so the thing is, I think that after in very initial suspicion, but I, I would say it was a strong relationship. Um, yeah, I would. Can you relate uh, who was Antoine Barnave and why in the aftermath of the flight to uh, Varennes uh, he chose to work with the Queen? Well, um, in a way, um, this links in with Mirabeau um, that I think that um, Barnave was really Mirabeau's heir. And Barnave was an early radical, um, as indeed Mirabeau was, but he had come to the conclusion that um, his own words, it is time to stop the revolution, we must stop the revolution, because if it went any further, you would get a descent into barbarism, you'd get an attack on property. He was a great believer in property. So when um, the royal couple are, are arrested at Varennes, he arranges to go out, um, he's in the National Assembly, he, he arranges to one of the commissioners to go out and bring her back. And when he's, as they're coming back, they, they, they do a deal. They get on very well indeed. I mean, you know, they're both attractive people. He's younger, a lot younger, but he, although he's um, not, he's a commoner, he has the manners of a nobleman. And he's very educated, intelligent, and all that. And um, so they have, they, they have this deal, which is this. When the king flees Paris, he leaves a memorandum saying how he wants the constitution to be amended to strengthen the monarchy. Barnard says, I will get that done. But you, on the other hand, must get your brother the emperor to recognize the revolution, renew the alliance, and give international credibility to the French Revolution. And they agree. Unfortunately, um, Barnav cannot get all the changes he wants made, but he gets some made. And then the National Assembly ends its days, and you have a new body called the Legislative Assembly. And in this period, a period between September um, 1791 and January, the king and the queen, the, sorry, the queen and Barnard effectively run the country by letter. They only meet a few times because Barnard is, they, they both realize that, that if they're caught, they'll both be killed. They know that. So what they do, they write this secret correspondence of 44 letters detailing all the details, you know, whether the king should veto a particular kind of legislation, what the uniform of a guard should be, all sorts of little things like that. They discuss, and then they have it implemented um, through the justice minister. He's the channel of communication. So they, they decide policy, Marantelet and Barnav, they decide policy, and then um, it, it is then sent to a um, to, to special room in the Tuileries, where, where it is implemented. Now, um, this, I think, could have been um, very successful. I think that for a period of about three months, the monarchy seemed to be getting stronger. The ministry seemed to have more control. But one thing, one disastrous thing went wrong. And it's this. There was a, a radical party in the Legislative Assembly, which wanted to force war between Austria and France in order to smoke out the presumed treason of Marie Antoinette. 
so they actually set out um, to wreck the deal because the whole deal, the whole for Barnab, the whole thing is we must have peace. You have, you, you know, if you have war, this will bring down the monarchy. He knows that, you see. And so, um, what happens is that the, the Giron party, this faction, bring about war, um, and this this just means that. Um, it, it cannot work now. Sim- simply, it, it, it cannot work um, because the whole Barnab's whole scheme is predicated on peace, and um, it is. It is for me the group of the revolution, the, the faction which I have least sympathy with at all, is the Girondins because they set out to wreck the constitutional monarchy, which Marionton is trying to save. And I believe that, you know, but for that, um, they had a sporting chance of success. Um, not a, a, I say a sporting chance, so, so I mean less than 50%, but a chance worth trying. And people argue that she was double-crossing Barnav because she was negotiating with her brother as well. Well, she was, but I mean, she was hedging her bets, and so was he. But as long as there was a chance... Of it, of it succeeding, you know, she, she was sincere. When it became clear that war was inevitable, Barnav left and went back to Grenoble. And he basically, I can't expect, I don't know why he went back. She said she understood the reasons for it, but I don't know what they are. And, and right at the moment now I'm writing a biography of Barnav, and I still don't know why. I mean, he said he was sorting out his uncle's estate or something like that but I think he just probably went because he realized the whole thing um, was doomed but you know because of the because of approaching war war revolutionized the revolution that, that that's what they say so um, I think that um, and in a way he, I, he she could have done with his, his advice and I think you have to say he deserted her I mean, there was a tearful, you know, a tearful farewell and whatever, and, and, and she never blamed him. But that was that. So it would be correct to assume that you would strongly disagree with uh, Francois Fauré's um, uh, characterization of the correspondence between the two, uh, this is around 30 years ago, as, uh, quote, silly and pathetic, unquote. Well, I certainly would, um, because it... <laughs> It was it was about concrete material things, like when the legislative assembly wanted to introduce legislation um, deporting refractory priests. Um, the king had to decide whether to veto it and how to do it. So they discussed that back and back and forth. Um, all the things that there isn't a, a moment of silliness or frivolity in it, I, I don't think, in, in the whole thing. Um, I mean, I mean Fury has a party pre, I mean, but, um, yeah, the thing is that the French have never, they can't understand, in the, looking at the revolution, the need for compromise. Um, it, it, it's one thing or the other, you know, it, it is, I mean, Fury sees the revolution as a, as a, as a wagon hurtling faster and faster and faster until it comes against the buffers. Um, whereas, so all the people, 
and it's true. It's 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 like Joyce, you know, the centre callous hold. I mean, when 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 you get this sort of these extremes, it's very hard to, um, you know, it's not like Barnard says, you know, it is time to he, get, he makes this great speech saying it is time to stop the revolution. The revolution is not a taxi or cab that can be hailed. I mean, he has its own momentum, um, and although he realises, you know, that, that there will be a descent into barbarism, and there was. Um, you know, he, 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 could, he couldn't do it, really. What, if any, responsibility did the Queen have for the declaration of war against Austria in 1792? I, I think very little. Uh, and the first you have to remember it is it was um, France that declared war on Austria, not vice versa. Um, so um, I, I think very little. I mean, she... I, I don't, it's, it's very difficult to know what she wanted out of Austria. And Leopold, uh, her brother now, Joseph, had died in 1790. Joseph didn't know what she wanted. She didn't know what... what nobody... There was a complete lack of understanding. And again, it's this question of, of space and time. Merci Argento has left has, in a cowardly way. And the, the communications are difficult. I mean, it takes time. I don't know, it takes a fortnight to send a letter... Um, so, um, it, I, I think she had no influence on that whatsoever, on the declaration of war, except in this negative sense that the Girondins wanted war in order to say that she was treasonable. Uh, that, that, it, it, it's in that negative sense that she had a role. In other words, if she hadn't existed, there wouldn't have been the war. But it doesn't mean that, that she actually provoked it. How did the Queen behave in her trial, and how did she meet her death? Well, well the thing is, at her trial, she actually performed very well. Um, she put up a, a spirited performance. Um, and so good that some people think that she actually thought for a moment she could get off. Oh, of course she couldn't. But it was very good. Um, she would point out that they would mention such and such a minister being a minister in um, November, and she would say, no, 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 this wasn't minister, it was somebody else. He was minister in, in May or, or something like that. Um, and she answered all the questions very well. Um, and the charges, it was a criminal trial, um, rather than the political trial. That's, they, they tried to present it like that. I mean, the thing is really that you have to accept she was accused of um, treason. And you, it is a fact that she did send letters um, giving away the French plan of attack. She, she did that. Um, so in that sense, um, she was guilty of one of the three charges. But, of course, they didn't have the proof that we now have. And it is really the hallmark of the rule of law um, that you, if you're absolutely sure somebody's guilty, but you don't have the proof, you acquit. So in that sense, I mean, ridiculous talk about the rule of law. I mean, this is the irony of the French Revolution is that the rule of lawyers, they were all lawyers, the rule of lawyers couldn't bring about the rule of law. So that's, that's and she was, she was guilty of one thing. Um, I suppose the most, the most famous and, I suppose, 
a low point in the whole French Revolution was when they persuaded her eight-year-old boy to say that um, Marantonette had molested him um, and uh, made him masturbate. And um, this, the people involved in doing this were, one of them was the, the artist David, um, <laughs> the great artist who's a mem member of the, the police um, committee of, of the National Convention. And they, they, they actually persuaded this little boy to, to you know, give evidence that she had done these things. Um, and when this evidence was presented, um, she said absolutely nothing. And then one of the jurors, one of these jurors said, addressed the president, said, Monsieur President, I, I noticed that the accused didn't answer this question. And then she made this very famous retort. She turned round and said, um, if I did not answer this question, it is one that no woman should be forced to answer. On this matter, I appeal to them, any mothers of you that may be present. And of course, this was... Uh, this infuriated Robespierre. Robespierre had been behind having her put on trial, and he was absolutely furious, you know, that, that she had this propaganda coup. And he, he said, you know, it, it, it's all right, you know, to, they always talk about Roman, all right to accuse her of being um, a Messalina, but not an Acropina as well. I don't know which of these Roman ladies was an incestuous or whatever, but, but I mean, he was absolutely mad, and he smashed the plate. He actually smashed the plate with anger. Um, not, that it, not that it made any difference in the trial, but um, it, it, it's something that went down, you know, this, this flashed across Europe like lightning. Uh, and this is also one of the things that enable us to, to have pity on this woman who at first, you know, was silly, silly girl, you know, now has grown in stature, which she does. Um, and that is good. And then as regards her death, um, she doesn't make the... She doesn't make the sort of the grand death that her husband, Louis XVI, had made. She doesn't address the crowd. I mean, she's ill, for, for one thing. Um, she's hemorrhaged on the, the very night that, that before her, she's executed, has to change her dress. Um, she's so ill um, that maybe people, people begin to think that she'll cheat death by dying first. So she's really... Um, she's taken to the trial, and of course there is this famous sketch of her by David, this evil man, this, you know, this evil genius, um, and this famous cruel sketch of her. And you look at it and you read, it's, it's, it's a work of genius, but you see that she is obviously broken, but it's like a sort of an archangel though in ruins, you know, it's like a, it's a ruin, the, the glory's there, but there's the proud, because she's lost weight, the proud Habsburg jaw juts out more. Um, and she's defiant, both defiant and broken. And then I think she must have just been glad to get the whole thing over. As I say, she was ill. She, she, she had no sleep in the trial. It lasted 48 hours almost nonstop. And she was dragged there. She just had a, a bite to eat um, and was very ill. But, I mean, so it doesn't... Act, what The images you get, you see, the, the, the popular images now... We have Louis XVI standing there addressing the crowd um, and, and, and all the soldiers around and that, you see, that, that is Louis' death. Her death is, 
is the David sketch. We, we don't really look at her um, on the scaffold. I don't think it's, it's not, it's, it doesn't resonate. At one point, you mentioned that the king had the queen reading David Hume's History of England. Was yes. That, what, was she reading it in French in the king's translation or in English? I would think she would, she would, I think she would have to read it in French. I don't think she had any English. No, I, I, I think she, she, I mean, David Hume was very popular, um, it, very popular indeed um, in France. I mean, he actually um, visited and um, was presented to Louis XVI when he was a little boy. Um, but I think that um, it must have, there, there, there were French translations and she would have read that, yes. But I mean, this is, this is obviously the, the parallel with Charles I was something an unhealthy obsession, really. Would it be correct to say that you would not agree with the uh, historian Eric Hobsbawm's assessment of the Queen in his book, The Age Revolution, uh, that she was, quote, empty-headed and frivolous, unquote? No, I mean, she, she was intelligent, fairly intelligent, but badly educated. Um... When she was frivolous, it was the age of frivolity, I mean, because she was a teenager. I mean, she was buying bling, you know, that sort of thing, really, you know. When, when, you know, when she was 21, she was buying diamonds. Um, uh, so it, it's really, it, it, actually, an empty head is quite good. It's an empty head that is filled. That, that's what happens. An empty, head, an empty head is filled up. Um, and the frivolity is, is driven out. Um, I mean, there, there is absolutely no frivolity after, I don't know, really probably after the birth of her, of her children, I think, stops, stops the frivolous thing. So let's, let's think of it like that, that, an empty head that is filled, filled by, um, she, for example, she has, you know, she, she could barely read and write when she came to France, but... She had to, she had to devise a code to write secret letters all the time, you know, the letters to, to Barnab and all that. Um, so, so she, 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 ironically, she, she worked very, very hard during the revolution at her desk. Would it be correct to say that as in your biography of King Louis the Sixteenth, that the importance of contingency, uh, is, immediately comes to mind, and that a theological a theological reading of the French of French history between, say, 1770 and 1792, is not perhaps the best way of understanding French history in this period. Yes, yes. Contingency. This is, this is absolutely true. I mean, if you take the great historian Norman Hampson, who's influenced me quite a lot, um, he once said. We all know the role of chance in our own lives, so why should we expect to be any different in, his, in history, which is made up of people? Contingency is absolutely enormous, really. Um, well, for example, the flight to Varennes and the actual when they get to Varennes, um, the, the, the things, that, the chapter of accidents on that journey uh, is amazing, really. Um, uh, so, 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 I mean, there, there is contingency. I mean, think, another contingency is the, the death of Louis XV, the premature death of Louis XV. Now, Louis XV, um, 
had devised a sort of, I would say, a reforming program, which was, which was bedding in. And then he suddenly died in the middle of it, and, 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 and Louis XVI reversed it. Now, if Louis XV had lived, as you might have expected, another seven or eight years, let's say, till he was 70, um, well, somebody has argued there might have been a revolution then and there. But that's a sort of, a sort of clever remark. I mean, I, I think something like the prem- you've got the premature death of um, the premature death of Louis XV, the premature death of his his son, Louis XVI's father, is another thing. Um, so th- there are so many. This, you, you've got this tension between inevitability and contingency. I think that when you get to when it become when matters become complex and less linear, in a way, it's sort of linear up to 1785 or six. When it becomes more complex, um, there's maybe more of a sense of inevitability. I mean, when you get to, by the time you get to, after, um, certainly after the, the October days, after the king and queen um, are brought back to Paris, I, I think that the fall of the monarchy is almost inevitable. So that I would see that like that. They're sort of, yes, in the... It, Yes, think of that as like like, like a, a a plot that thickens, and as it thickens, it becomes harder to dodge your fate. Oh, with that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Hardman, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Hardman. Thank you. I've enjoyed it.